Good morning, church. Uh, go ahead and turn to John chapter 12. We will read from verse 1 all the way through verse 11 and study one of the best passages in Scripture on the topic of worship and one of my favorite passages in Scripture regarding one of my favorite characters in Scripture, in scripture Mary of Bethany uh, or, or Mary the Worshipper. So in verse 1, John chapter 12, it says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for my, the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Lord God, we just ask uh, your Holy Spirit to be on us, giving us understanding of this passage. We pray that as we look to Jesus and we look to glorify Jesus, we would resemble Mary the worshiper, uh, that you would teach us how to approach your throne of grace and with the same kind of extravagance, with the same kind of humility, so that we can worship you in spirit and in truth as you desire to be worshiped. Bless us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in chapter 11, on the, the, the entirety of chapter 11 was really about resurrection. It was the events leading up to and the events directly following the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And it's a remarkable story. It's an incredible story as we see here. It made a lot of ripples. Um, there's people that are upset with Lazarus being alive and would wish that he were dead again. Um, there may be some parallels there with uh, our personal testimonies as we come to Christ and not everyone's super thrilled about that. Uh, we see that many people believed in Jesus because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And I, I like that the story of Lazarus and Martha and Mary that we began in chapter 11 leads us to this scene at this feast at the home of, um, uh, we know this is at the, the home of, of Simon the leper. Um, and I, I like that it leads to worship because that is where resurrection leads us. And we see the conquering Christ go and, and declares authority over death. And that's wonderful and miraculous and, of course, very effective. And, and this is your personal testimony. You have been called out of the grave. You have been transferred from darkness into light. You were dead, but now you are alive in Christ. That's the gospel. But, but where does that leave us? Where does that lead us? It leads us to worship. Um... And that's where we're headed. You know, in, in heaven, uh, I, I say this often, in heaven, resurrection is not going to be that special. Everyone's done it. Everyone in heaven will have been raised from the dead. That's, that's what the world is going to be like. Your world is going to be like in a billion years. Everyone who lives there will have been raised from the dead. And uh, so resurrection, we're not going to see a lot of dead people rising from the dead in heaven. 
living people rising from the dead from heaven? I don't know. Uh, but what we will see is we'll see worship. Worship is something that will take place uh, now and after death and then, you know, 10,000 years bright shining as the sun. We'll have no less days to, to, give his, to sing his praise than when we first begun. So this, this picture of worship is something that is for now, but it's also for later. It's for heaven. It, we are going to be able to adore Jesus uh, today, tomorrow, and in a million years. So resurrection leads us here. And we, we're, we're starting a new section of the Gospel of John right now. Um, we're counting down to the cross. The resurrection of Lazarus was the last event that kind of marked the first section of Christ's ministry. He had uh, seven signs that John included, from the turning of water to wine to the raising of Lazarus from the dead. We had his ministry described in that passage, and then now we have his final week and all the, the things that he teaches his disciples during that time. The timeline is given for us. We're not actually in Holy Week yet, but we are less than a week out from the cross. So it says, Then six days before the Passover, Lazarus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was... Jesus came to Bethany. Sorry, I, said, I read that wrong, didn't I? Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. Uh, so six days from Passover. Passover happens on Thursday, the day before Good Friday. That's the Last Supper. Six days before that, this is, happens on a Friday. This is a previous Friday, and this supper that is given to him is, is a Shabbat dinner, okay? It's Friday night. That's the beginning of, pa of the Sabbath. Um, but this is sort of interesting because if you go to Matthew 26, you read about the anointing of Jesus' feet, and you go to Mark chapter 14, and, and you see the same thing. And in th both of those stories, it's set within Holy Week two days before Passover. That's when this story is told. Now, some people have figured that that's a separate anointing that happens, and it's a different woman that behaves in exactly the same way, that evokes the exact same response from Jesus. That doesn't seem very likely. Um, what you notice in those passages, and in this passage, is that it's told in the context, um, really, of Judas's falling away. It's here to contrast the worshiper and then the enemy of Christ. And two days before the Passover, two days before that Thursday, is when Judas would go and he'd, he'd make this, this deal with the, uh, the chief priests and, and Pharisees. So that's probably why Matthew and Mark tell the story at that point, rather than here before Palm, uh, before Palm Sunday. Another theory is just more mathematical. Here it says six days before Passover uh, on those other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, that says two days before. It, they could be saying two days before the Passover week, um, which would begin on that Sunday. This is Friday, so it, it could add up like that. I'm not exactly sure, but the, the idea is that this story of Mary worshiping is to set a stark contrast to his betrayer. We have Mary on one hand, who is the worshiper, who gives her all. And then we have a selfish, false disciple on the other hand, who would deprive Christ of glory and save it for himself. So this story in Matthew and Mark is shared parenthetically to show Christ's motivation. In John, it's given here in its proper context, its proper um, time frame, maybe in order to put more of a spotlight on Mary herself. So... Uh, in verse 2, it says, 
There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him, which is pretty cool since Lazarus was in a tomb shortly before. Um, now some translations add a therefore um, in verse 2 to come out of verse 1, which says, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, therefore they made him a supper. So this could be a special feast given in order to, to say thank you to Jesus for raising the dead. I think that's a good reason to have a party, that Christ raises the dead. So this is a feast. Um, normally, Friday night dinner is a pretty big meal in, uh, in their homes back then. In my, my home today, Friday night is, is the Shabbat dinner. That's when you have a, a good meal and have people over. But this was specifically to commemorate and to celebrate resurrection. And at this feast, you see Martha uh, serving, which is what we see Martha do. We see Lazarus not say anything, which is consistent with his character in Scripture. Uh, but he's near to Jesus. He has been called out from the grave. And Jesus doesn't call anyone from death that he doesn't intend to draw into himself. He doesn't call anyone from the grave and then leave them at arm's length length, Lazarus is there sitting with Jesus at the table. That is where Jesus calls the dead. He calls those who are dead in sin, brings them to his table, and enjoys fellowship with them. Um, Mary, of course, we're going to see, uh, she worships. She worships deeply. Um, something in interesting about Martha here, in those other passages, Matthew 26 and Mark uh, 14, verse 3, Matthew 26, 6 and Mark 14, 3, you read that this isn't at their home. This isn't at Lazarus, Mary, and Martha's house in Bethany. This is at someone else's house, a guy named Simon the leper. Now, uh, a leper having a house is not consistent with what we read in Leviticus and Numbers about the law regarding leprosy. If someone had leprosy and they were diagnosed with leprosy, they would have to make their home in a sort of uh, refugee camp outside the city. Um, they were they would be poor. They're probably living more like in tents, and uh, that is where a leper would live. The fact that this leper named Simon has a house and that he has people over for dinner means that Simon is a healed leper. Simon is a healed leper. Uh, leprosy at this time did not have a cure. There's an entire chapter in Leviticus about what to do when a leper is cleansed. And that law wouldn't have really been followed until Christ showed up on the scene and started healing lepers. So Simon is one of those lepers. He's one of the lepers that, that Jesus miraculously healed, being really the, the first person in history that had power in himself to heal leprosy. And so in this feast that's there to commemorate the resurrection from the dead, uh, Simon the leper has reason to celebrate because leprosy was a living death. It was a death sentence and it was, it was a long, slow death. But now he has his home, he has friends, he has Christ in his home, and they're throwing a feast. But even though it's Simon's house, Martha is still playing hostess. And it's, it's not even her house. I'm not judging her or anything. You just, you know someone like this. Um, she goes and she takes command of the kitchen. She brought her own apron from home and she is going to town here, throwing a great party. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty cool crowd here. And this is, you know, an important meal um, that's happening. You have Lazarus, who is dead. 
You have Simon, who had been a leper. You have the disciples here. You have Matthew, who is a, a tax collector, right? Simon, the zealot, political revolutionary. And joined together at this meal are people who Christ has changed. And just in this little microcosm of, the redeem, of redeemed humanity, uh, we see a reflection of the church, of course, because we're part of that redeemed humanity. When we meet together, we meet with Christ as people who he has changed. You know, there's Simon the leper, but he's not a leper anymore. And, you know, there's, there's Sam the sinner, but Christ forgives sins. There's Matthew the tax collector, and there's you with all of your past, but Christ has changed you and brought you together with a whole bunch of other people that he's also changed in order to celebrate his power over death. This is kind of what we do as a church. This is sort of what it's supposed to look like every time we get together with other saints, with other believers. We are people Christ has changed and we celebrate his power. And when we gather together as people whom Christ has changed, there ought to be something that looks like what Mary does next. Verse 3. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Now once again, we've seen Mary, and we see that Mary is always, always, always at the feet of Jesus. That is where Mary lives. You know, the first time we meet Mary, she's receiving from Jesus. Jesus is teaching in her home, and she's at his feet. In the last chapter, in chapter 11, we saw that Mary mourns at the feet of Jesus. And here, she goes to Jesus' feet, and she worships at the feet of Jesus. She's always at his feet. And she's a model for us here. She's a role model for us to follow, because we want to be there. We want to be at the feet of Jesus. And, and look at the kind of worship that she uh, that she brings. It's a pound. It says it's a pound of very costly oil. This is a perfume. Now, this is a Roman pound, so we're talking about 12 ounces rather than 16, most likely. But, I, I mean, I don't know how much perfume you use, but I hope it's not 12 ounces at a time. Um, imagine breaking a bottle, uh, a 12-ounce bottle, of very expensive, very potent perfume. And it says that the fragrance filled the house. Oh yeah, I, I doubt they were able to get the smell out of the house for a long time. And, and again, we, we have a real contrast here because remember in chapter 11, we have that favorite verse of King James English. Um, if you read it in the old King James where Martha says, Lord, he stinketh. Okay, there's a stench and we saw that Christ came to Lazarus after four days of decay when the smell starts, and then when the smell starts sticking. You can't get rid of it. But Jesus conquered that. He conquered that death. He called Lazarus out of the grave. He, they, they unwrapped him. They set him free. And then now Lazarus is sitting by Jesus. And Lazarus' sister comes, and she breaks this bottle of perfume, and it fill, the smell fills the whole house. Um, it, this is a replacement of the smell of death. Not just Lazarus' death, death, but Jesus says, this is for my burial. This is to overcome the stench of death. I mean, we talked last week, we kind of uh, symbolized death a little bit. We were allowed to do that in, in uh, Scripture where we see sin 
is death. And we can talk about death both physically and spiritually. Well, physical death causes a really bad smell. Uh, spiritual death, sin, also causes a really bad spiritual smell. Worship is the antithesis to that smell. Worship is the other smell that fills the house, that gets into the curtains, that sinks into the carpet, that sets the entire tone. As soon as someone would walk into this house, they would be able to smell 12 ounces of expensive perfume. When Jesus walked through the Jerusalem throughout this next week, okay, when he would go on, on the donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey, and ride into Jerusalem while people say, Hosanna, this is what he smelled like. This is what he smelled like. So she has 12 ounces of very costly perfume. It's, the smell of it is, is rich, it's potent, it's strong. It fills the whole house. It says it's very costly. Now the other um, gospels here and, and verse, verse 5 gives us the clue here. It says uh, this was 300 denarii. You could sell this, Judas figured, that you could sell this for 300 denarii, which was about one year's wages. Now, I like to apply this, uh, you know, personally. So think of, uh, maybe not what you made last year. I mean, you could do that. Think of what, what that is. But uh, if you want to just be humble about it, I guess, th think of whatever you made the first year you were in the workforce. Whatever you made that first year. How many, how much did you work? How many, now, it's, it's a lot smaller than maybe you made last year. But even that smaller amount, imagine blowing that on a bottle of perfume. This is very expensive. This is very, very expensive. And the fact that she had this much shows that, you know, Mary and Martha and Lazarus were probably, you know, fairly well off, but this is still not a common thing to have in someone's possession. And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and I'll say it again. It seems likely, or at least possible, that this was Mary's dowry. This was her, uh, this was something she would bring into her marriage, and it was kind of a, a way of getting a good husband, actually. The women were expected to have something of value to bring into that, um, that relationship, and I, this would be very expensive, and she breaks it. And in doing so, what she is doing is she is putting all of her hopes for her future in the person of Jesus. Um, she takes this expensive spikenard. Nard is from East India. It's from far away. It cost a lot of money to get there. Um, it was contained in alabaster jars. Um, there wasn't a cork. There wasn't a lid. You broke it in order to use it. Um, and we see that Mary, who has been broken at the feet of Jesus, is really a, a picture of the smell. Um, you know, in... in uh, Revelation, you see the golden altar and incense rising. Now, incense is, it's a smell, right? Okay, it's the smoke and it, it smells sweet. And we're told that that incense in heaven is the prayers of the saints. And Mary's worship is more fragrant than the oil here in the story. Um, it, last, it certainly lasted longer. Everywhere the gospel is preached, her story is told. But her worship and her her humility here, it, it fills the room, it leaves a mark, it makes an impact. And it's a extreme worship, I've said that before, it's extreme worship, it's expensive. And you think of David in uh, 
worshiping the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, where the temple would be built. And he says, the, the, the owner says, just take it, just take it. Well, you want to worship God here? Do it. That's fine. Here's my cows. You can sacrifice them. It's free. Go ahead. And David says, no, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to buy this place to build an altar. And I'm going to buy your cows to sacrifice to the Lord because I will not offer to the Lord that which cost me nothing. He says, I want it to cost me. I want to pay for it. I want to give everything I have. And that's what Mary is doing. It's extreme worship. We see that it's very humble worship. You know, washing feet, um, anointing would be part of that. Usually, of course, just a drop of oil, uh, a little little tiny bit of perfume, maybe. Uh, this is a whole, a whole bottle of very costly spikenard. But washing the feet and anointing the feet, this is a job for slaves. This is a job for the lowest of the low. You're familiar with the story that we'll, we'll read later in John of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, right? And... And the fact that Jesus washed the disciples' feet meant that none of the twelve took it upon themselves to wash feet. Okay? He had to do it because no one else would. This is a lowly job that you try and put off on, on the least important person in the room. And Mary is saying, that's me. I will be the least important person in the room if that means that I can be the closest person to Christ. And I want you to know this that the one who makes themselves the most humble is the one who's closest to Christ. That's, that's a promise we have from him, where he says he's near to the brokenhearted, he's close to the contrite in spirit. Okay? We humble ourselves be, before, under the mighty hand of God that he may lift us up. So Mary makes herself low, she makes herself the slave. And Christ hasn't even given the order yet. He'd tell the disciples, you go and do likewise. You know, wash each other's feet, serve each other in the most humble position. She wasn't even there for part of that sermon, but she loves Christ enough to know that to be low is to be near him. And if, if being humble means she can touch him, that's where she wants to be. So she humbles herself to the place of a slave and she washes his feet with her hair. Now this a few things could be going on here, okay? She, she literally lets her hair down, um, and, you know, that, that phrase has meaning. Now, it was, um, it was uncommon, not unheard of, but uncommon for a woman to have her hair uncovered in, you know, a formal setting. Um, in certain scenarios, you know, there would be a, a woman would uh, uncover her hair, and that would be a sign of uh, mourning, even. Um, Paul talks in Corinthians, which is mostly Gentile rather than Jewish, he's saying if you know your hair is uncovered in your culture, that's basically like having your head shaved. And having your head shaved in, again, some cultures is a sign of, of deep mourning, deep grief. And uh, you remember in, in um, chapter 11, where she goes out to worship Christ, she goes out to Jesus and she, to, to fall at his feet. And what that looks like to everyone else is mourning. They say, oh, she's going to weep at the tomb. Sometimes worship looks like mourning. So it, it could be that, you know, her hair being let down, it's not put up, she lets her hair down. This could be a sign of deep mourning. And, and we see that she does this for his burial. So she has reason to be in grief. Others would have seen this and, and probably did in this setting as uh, saw that this, this could be a sign of loose morals even. And... You know, sometimes 
Sometimes acting crazy, worship looks like acting crazy too. I mean, not, not often, but you think of David saying, I will become even more indignified than this. When they see her let down her hair and they wash Jesus' feet with her hair, they're like, oh, that's a little, that's a little too close. You know, like have a little bit of dignity. Why don't you just sit down and, you know, just do like everyone else and just say thank you politely. Wouldn't that be more normal? That would make everyone else more comfortable. Certainly. And obviously, you know, we hear this a lot in church. Your worship, Mary, uh, is distracting other people from worship. Your worship is so extravagant and it's so weird, but all we can do is look at you. And like, we're here for Jesus. So you're being a distraction right now. And you should probably just do that in the back. You know what? You should probably only anoint his feet, you know, in your own time, in your heart. That, that's probably what a lot of people would have been saying here, but she worships like this publicly. Make application as you see fit. She becomes undignified. Her, her worship looks like grief. It's not private anymore. Her worship looks like being undone. She lets her hair down. But this worship smells beautiful. It smells beautiful. And, and we see that this is worship. It, worship is attributing value to Christ with everything you have, with everything you are, where you become empty at his feet in order to make him a focal point. Jesus will smell like this worship for the next week. She makes Jesus noticeable through her worship. She worships Christ in such a way where even though she may stay in the town of Bethany, Bethany, Christ will go out among the multitudes in two days and he will still draw people's attention because her worship has stuck to him. When people encounter resurrection, as they did in the last chapter, they will be drawn either towards worship or towards just a selfish anger. And we saw that in chapter 11 where there was people after they heard Lazarus died and they heard that Lazarus rose from the dead, they want to arrest Jesus and kill him. And now Mary has encountered this resurrecting king and she worships and that's the correct response. And then we have Judas with the incorrect response and we have to look at both of them. So uh, let's look at the enemies of worship. Verse 4, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, worship has its enemies. Worship has its enemies. And this isn't persecution, per se. Judas isn't throwing anyone in prison. He's not physically hurting anyone. But he asks the question, and the enemies of worship will ask this question, is it worth it? Is it worth my time? Is it worth the money? Is it worth the, the, maybe the embarrassment? Is it worth it to worship Christ? Is it, is it worth it? And they'll ask this of other people. Is it worth it for you to worship Christ the way you are worshiping him? The answer is yes, he's worth it. He's always going to be worth it. Is he worthy? The answer is yes, inevitably always Yes, but watch out because Judas makes a lot of sense. Don't be too quick to 
throw aside his suggestion because we have tendencies to think very similarly to the way he's thinking right now. Judas makes sense. Practically and religiously, Judas is the sensible grown-up in the room. And, of course, verse 6, we get kind of that, that extra piece of information. We get the, um, the motive. You know, it says, well, he didn't care for the poor, actually. He was a thief, and he wanted that money in the money box, and then he would take it and, and uh, use it for whatever he wanted. Um, we get the motive. But the question, not everyone knew that at the time. And, and the question is, is said you know, in a way that's convincing to other people. We know that it wasn't just Judas that gave Mary a hard time. It's actually the other disciples as well. We'll look at the cross-reference in a bit. Um, and the question he says, is this the best use of this fragrant oil? She wasted it all in one go, and that was very expensive, a year's wages. Now think of all the good we could have done. Think of all the good we could have done. Wow. And there's a lot of important things in this question. There's an important distinction. What is the chief end of man? Is it to care for the poor? No. Is it to love your neighbor? No. Those important secondary matters are only worship when worship is first. And, and yeah, you know what? Selling your expensive perfume and giving it to the poor, I advise you to do that. You do it. That's a good thing. I think that's a great thing, but it's only a good thing if Christ is first. Christ must be first for any of those things to be a good thing. Okay, loving your neighbor, caring for the poor, you know, caring for orphans and widows. These are This is pure and undefiled religion. That's fantastic. But it's only worship when it's worship. It's only worship when it's done for the sake of Christ, ultimately, and not only the individual. Okay, caring for the poor and loving your neighbor, these things can be worship if worship of Jesus is preeminent. But you see that when Judas asks, you know, is this worth it? He's, he's thinking very efficiently. He's thinking practically. And we do this, especially in regards to humanitarian aid and, and missions. And you think, you know, I mean, I've, this is the longest actually, right now, to, uh, this is the longest I've been in the country without leaving on a mission trip since I became a pastor. It's crazy. I, I'm starting to miss airports. It's bizarre. But uh, the question always arises, and not, necess not necessarily from other people, but in my own heart as well. I think, well, plane tickets are expensive. Is this the most efficient thing to do? Is this the best use of money? And that's a worthwhile question. Um, but it falls into line when Christ becomes first. When Christ is first, and you're obeying him, and believing him, and worshiping him, when there's you know, just the, the slightest um, hint of a call or an invitation, you know, the, the obedient children of God jump at the chance to obey. And when he says go, go into all the world, as an example, um, none of the disciples in Matthew 28 said, yes, but to what's the dollar amount? Like, how much should I spend on that kind of worship? That, that's not a question. That's not a question we ask when we're following Christ for, with, his, with his heart in our hearts. Um, but it comes up, we think, is this, is this worship worth it? Well, if it's for Christ and Christ alone, then it is. It is, wor it is worth it. And that's not to say that we don't, you know, value wise financial management and things like that. But you see that this question can come up and appear, even in your own heart. It can appear sensible. It can come up and you can say, well, it really does make sense. You know, it would make more sense for me not to obey, but I'll just... Maybe I'll just pray for someone else to obey. 
that makes more sense. And, uh, you know, I freed up my whole afternoon now because I don't have to obey and I, I can do what I want. Uh, I'll just pay for someone else to go do ministry because I, I don't have to. Um, I'll just... I'll just give a gift to someone else and they'll obey Christ. And we have these ideas come up in our hearts and we can be just like Judas who really, you're not doing that because you care for the poor. You're not doing that because you want to obey. You're doing that because you don't want to be like Mary who gives everything she has to the Christ that she loves above all things. And and you can think yourself into a corner and think that you are the most efficient worshiper ever, but we don't really read about efficient worshipers. We read about David saying, I'll become even more undignified than this. We read about Mary uh, pouring out her praise at the feet of Jesus. And, you know, with, with the project that maybe Judas could have spearheaded and efficiently raised up a humanitarian thing, uh, you know, a 501c3 nonprofit to feed the poor, uh, and all those things. Uh, all of that work is just work of the flesh without worship. Without real worship, it's just a work of the flesh. And the thing is, is like, work can be worship, but in, if it's not, then it's bad work. And, and that's kind of a progression that we've seen with Martha. Okay, we see Mary worship here, but you know what? I think we see Martha worship here too. In verse, uh, uh, in verse 2, Martha served, right? But Martha at this point has been through a lot with Christ. Martha and Jesus had had a talk in her house where Jesus said, you know, there's a better, there's a better way, there's a better thing. Spend time with me, be with me. And I think Martha has grown to the place where she can now serve not in a way that needs to be rebuked by any means, but where her service has become worship. You know why? Because in the last chapter, she had that talk with Jesus where she said, yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world, and Judas could never say that. Without worship, everything is just a work of the flesh. Um, now in verse 6, again, we have the reason. It says, for, he said, for this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Now, in the Old Testament, there's a, a prophet, and God speaks to the prophet, and the prophet says to the people, you've robbed God. And they say, we haven't robbed God. You're calling us temple robbers? That's crazy. How, how dare you? And the prophet explains, no, no, no. I'm paraphrasing here, of course. This is the Talmonian version of the Bible. Um, he says, no, no, you, you've robbed God from, by not giving to him what is his. You know, in that example, it's tithes and offerings. Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar and God what is God's, which is what is made in the image of God, yourself, your entire self. He says, you've robbed God. Now, I'm not, I don't think any of you are thieves in the, the technical sense, but I know that I have a tendency to rob God of the glory that is due his name. And I'm like Judas in this story just as often, maybe more than I am like Mary. Judas says, well, I won't, I'm, I'm going to, I won't obey. I won't worship like that because this is more efficient and this is better and this is a better use of my time, resources, money, intelligence, whatever. I'm not going to do that because I have better ideas. And what that, what we see is that Judas is a thief. And I think the person who, who convinces themselves that they have a reason not to obey because it makes more sense, it's more efficient, whatever, has revealed themselves to be a thief like Judas. The one, especially the one who can criticize a 
rash decision from someone else and saying, well, they, look how they worship. Look how much money they gave. Look how much time they, they, they gave. They really should be you know, behaving more wisely. Um, that reveals the heart of a thief. And we should celebrate the extravagant acts of worship. And then we should imitate the extravagant, expensive acts of worship. Because by withholding this kind of worship, we associate, our, we associate ourselves more with Judas the thief than with Mary the worshiper. Now, it says this here, that Judas was a thief. He had the money box. He wanted the money. It, that's, that isn't written just to make you hate Judas. You'll have plenty of reasons to do that later on. It's to show the contrast. This story is always paired with Judas's betrayal in Matthew, Mark, and John. It's a contrast, and, and it, you see worship on one hand and selfishness on the other. And you know that we have tendencies. We are naturally bent towards selfishness. So we look at Mary uh, as, as medicine. We look at this worship as the antidote to our selfishness. And, and we see that even humanitarian aid and good deeds can be done in service to self. Judas worshipped himself, which ruined the possibility of generosity. But again, Judas makes sense. Judas influenced the others. In Matthew 26, verse 8, it says, They were in indignant. All these other guys, all the apostles, the disciples, they're not apostles yet, the disciples, oh yeah, they're so upset with Mary. And they're giving her a hard time. They're criticizing her for her carelessness in worship. I would say, read the room, guys. Like, you are missing the point this emotional, extremely humble display of honor and affection is rudely interrupted by Judas and the people that he influences. Now imagine these people at your dinner party, okay, even if Jesus isn't there. Just imagine them at your house, you're having dinner, and a guest is honored. It's their birthday or whatever. They get a present, who knows, okay? And, and the religious and uh, the religious accountant that you invited says, well, that cost too much. That cost too much. What's their real statement? That person's not worth it. That's, the, that's what's really being said. Yeah, they can say, how could you give them that present when there are starving children in Africa? They, you know, they don't really care about the starving children in Africa. If they cared about the starving children in Africa, you know what? They can go and feed the starving children in Africa. But what Judas is saying is that Christ is not worth what this gift is. The Christ isn't worth it. That's what Judas believes about Christ. And, and Judas here, he's, it's not a good look. You know, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. And now Judas is accusing Mary of being wasteful and foolish. Now, it's, it's hard to... <laughs> It's hard to sort out, you know, church finances in, in what, whatever uh, setting you're, you're talking about it in. You know, the, Judas brings up good points. Well, is it worth it? How do you, how do you give this money in the, in the best place? You know, and it's impossible to have a universal formula to, well, where should the, the money go? You know, an exaggerated example. You know, okay, new, new carpet or orphans. Should seem obvious. Orphans is the correct answer. Okay, that's, that should be there. But these are conversations that, that churches have. These are the conversations that happen with deacons and boardrooms and things like that. And, and they can become difficult, uh, difficult things to, to talk about. Because you say, well, you know, the car is expensive, but also I need to drive to work, so I have to buy the car. It's like, well, what about the orphans? Well, I, I needed the money, you know? And, and the key here, 
I say it's impossible to come up with a formula, but there is a system. There's a universal system that makes sense here. The key is to worship like Mary. All the details really do get ironed out when you worship like Mary. How does Mary worship? She says, all is God's. All is Christ's. Everything is his. Everything is his. And then Mary seeks him for all things. Her hope is in Christ. That's the key here. Giving to the poor can be anointing Christ's feet. That can be how we anoint Christ's feet, giving to the poor. And so can a wasteful expense that gets some criticism. What some may call wasteful here, Christ calls beautiful. The key here is that Christ is preeminent. Christ is everything. He loves extravagant giving. Judas's alms would not have been for Jesus, right? They would have gone to him and eat. But to feed the poor and neglect the Savior is a worthless task, even if, even if this was given to the poor. But to, to feed the poor and then neglect the Savior of the world, that is a worthless task. And again, without worship, it's all just a work of the flesh. In verse 7 and 8, Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this, day for the di- kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. For his burial. Now Christ has, well, he's, he defends the worshiper, and that's a good thing to see because he still does. Christ defends the worshiper before the accuser of the brethren. But he mentions his burial here, and Jesus has prophesied about his death multiple times. Um... And the disciples never really understood it. But look who does. Mary. Jesus gives commentary on Mary's worship. He says, you know why she's doing this, gentlemen? She is doing this for my death. She's anointing me, preparing my body to be buried. That's what Mary's doing right now. The disciples did not understand that. They didn't understand it even after Jesus died. They didn't understand it on Easter when the women came and said the tomb is empty. They still did not understand it. You know who understood what was coming? Mary. Mary understood what was coming. Listen, worshipers understand things that thinkers do not. Worshipers understand in more depth than philosophers ever will. Worshippers see the things that the the thinkers and the religious accountants like Judas, they just miss. Worshippers understand things. The eyes of her understanding have been enlightened. She understood prophecy. How? Because knowledge comes in worship. Blindness is the result of worshiplessness, if that's even a word. They don't get it because they don't value Christ like Mary values Christ. But because Mary esteems Christ above all things, she is then able to worship more extensively, more extremely, more humbly, more spiritually, more truthfully than any of the disciples had worshipped. And she was able to understand the future with more clarity. She's able to understand Christ's mission with more clarity, more intensity, more even personal application than the disciples did. Because she worships. Because Mary has spent the time at Christ's feet. Now, in, in verse 9 through 11, which we'll just read real quick, it says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. 
the, the non-worshippers, these are Judas-like people, okay? The non-worshippers will, will band together, um, either in, in, you know, all, all the Gospels, Judas is seen conspiring here after um, the, this worship service. It's after Mary worships, and that pushes Judas to the edge in Matthew and Mark, and this is where he decides, I'm just going to turn Jesus in. And you see that he doesn't value Christ like Mary values Christ. Now, there's real obvious mirrors here in the Word. You know, the Word is like a mirror, and we go to it, and a lot of times we leave and forget what we looked like. We don't look like Mary enough. I look like Judas more often than I'd care to admit. But we, we have our example here very clearly. It's Mary. Mary, who is always at the feet of Jesus. She's always there. And because she spends that time there, she learns, she understands things that no one else understands. And she gets to be here anointing Jesus for his burial. Now, a pound of perfume, that's a lot. That is a lot of smell. And, and some people figure that this would have lasted days and days and days. And you wouldn't have been able to wash it off, and since people didn't really take a shower every day, probably didn't even try to wash it off. Well, this is six days before the Passover, seven days before Good Friday. It's not entirely unreasonable to think that Jesus' feet still smelled like this, that his, his uh, clothing, his, his hair, his beard would still smell like this oil on the cross. But in the midst of all that filth and, and the pain to inhale, Jesus would smell the worship of Mary. We ought to want to be able to give Jesus our whole selves if it's anything close to what this little bottle of perfume gave him. And Charles Spurgeon, he says, you must sit at his feet or you will never anoint them. If you... You know, if you want this, this kind of worship, be with him. Go be with Jesus. That's what Mary does. She grieves in his presence. She learns in his presence. She worships in his presence. You must sit at his feet or you will never anoint them. He must pour his divine teaching into you or you will never pour out a precious ointment upon him. Jesus has so much for you. It's way more than a bottle of perfume. He has so much to teach you, so much to impart to you. You go and you be like Mary and you sit at the feet of Jesus to receive and where that will lead you is here, an extreme, humble, extravagant worship where you are undone at his feet, where he is your everything, he's your hope, and he is your defense. That's what we see with Mary. That is what we would like to become. Let's pray. Jesus, we just, we pray, amen, let it be. Let it be like this. Let us be like Mary. Show us how to worship you like this. Show us how to offer to you um, not only our very best, but our everything. God, show us how to be emptied at your feet. Show us how to worship you in such a way where it draws attention to you, where it makes you more glorified in this world. God, we empty ourselves now. Uh, we confess that we don't worship like this. We confess that we make excuses and we, we make the confession of faith that you are good and merciful and kind to the sinner like us. Pray that you would bless our church and let us be a worshiping church. In Jesus' name, amen.